Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Vincent Bevins carries a kind of curiosity about him that's vital to great journalism. It's a profession that's ultimately in flux, and some would say in deep crisis. Vincent is from suburban LA in Orange County, but his work as a writer and foreign correspondent has taken him all over the world. From Caracas and Sao Paulo to London, Southeast Asia and back again, Vincent has documented how global politics has articulated on the ground for papers like the LA Times, the FT and the Washington Post. Vincent's career is a journey that ultimately took him to Indonesia to write his first book, The Jakarta Method, which was published in late 2020. The book documents a Cold War era far beyond the spy games and nuclear scares we all remember. This is a world of puppet government and brutal repression, one that ended up forming the playbook for right-wing regimes everywhere. Tell us about the book first off. Give us a top line on the book. Yeah, sure. It, the book's called The Jakarta Method, and it's about the mass murder of leftists in, in the 20th century, um, or the mass murder of people that were accused of being leftists by allies of the United States in the Cold War. And, and these were people that were killed intentionally uh, for a very specific purpose, and that was the construction of, of sort of capitalist authoritarian regimes that the United States thought, saw uh, in its interest to create in the 20th century. So the Jakarta method comes about when the most important part of this story, which is the 1965 U.S.-backed extermination of approximately one million uh, civilians in Indonesia, serves as an inspiration for other right-wing movements around the world, specifically in Brazil and Chile and then later in Central America. And they use Jakarta to, to signify exactly this, this, this phenomenon, the mass murder of people that are accused of being leftists. Yeah, and so really, it's, um, when you think about the implications of what you've uncovered and what you've documented there, it really is, um, it's almost like we've got to throw our conceptions of what we thought was the Cold War out, right? Yeah, I think, I think those of us in the English-speaking world do, yes. I think those you know, people in Indonesia and Brazil, they have a, they have a pretty good idea <laughs> because they lived, they lived through what it really meant. You know, they felt it often 
physically upon their bodies. But I think, yeah, in the U.S. and the U.K., there was a huge interest in telling us a story that would make us good citizens in the fight against quote-unquote communism, and uh, that left a lot, a lot uh, hidden that has been able to be uncovered recently because of declassified documentation, because of, you know, arduous, careful work by people in those countries to uncover testimony. But yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I think that the, the way we understand the Cold War is not quite right. And so, so I grew up, I'm a, I'm a, I was a teenager through the cult, you know, the last dregs of the Cold War, and I remember, you know, the, the language in which it was couched was, it was the Red Menace, but it was this very militaristic yeah. version of it. It wasn't, the, it wasn't like the Reds Under the Beds thing that in 50s yeah. America, but really what it seems like was that what was actually happening was that it was this kind of uh, broad assault on leftist politics all over the world. Yeah that comes from that initial early Cold War impulse, right. but landed very differently in specific places, right? I think that's right, I think that's right. Um, so, I think the, the image that we, that we received of the Cold War is that it happened largely between people in Washington, D.C. and people in Moscow, you know, uh, white men running the most powerful country in the world and the second most powerful country in the world, and that's not wrong, that did happen. There was the spy games between the U.S. and the USSR, with MI6 playing a big role uh, on the Western side as well. But if you view every single human being on planet Earth as equally important, and this is an approach I say at the beginning of a book that I do, what becomes clear is the Cold War is mostly fought between the first world and the third world. It's mostly, it's mostly the Western countries led by the United States interacting with the peoples of Africa and Asia and Latin America, people that used to be colonized and were finding their way in a new post-colonial world. And to a large extent, the United States was imposing its... its its vision of what that post-colonial reality should be for the brown and black peoples of the world, often with economic sanctions, sometimes with, with uh, underhanded covert operations, sort of James Bond kind of stuff, and often with outright violence, whether bombs in the case of Vietnam, or uh, the one tactic that I focus on in my book is organizing the intentional execution of, of huge numbers of people that they saw as inimical to the interests of this new order that was being created. So, yeah. What you've identified in is that this Jakarta method, right? What, what, is, what is the nature of that method? So, in Indonesia in 1965, what you had was the US-backed and US-trained military round up and arrest one or two million people, perhaps more. Um, a million of those people remained in concentration camps into the 70s. Um, purely for their political beliefs. Another 500,000 or a million or perhaps more were taken out of the prisons in the middle of the night, stabbed to death, thrown into rivers, and disappeared from the face of the earth. And this, again, this was not done sort of out of a, a wild, reckless sort of vengeance. This was, net, this was part of the construction of the Suharto dictatorship, which became one of the most important friends of the West in the Cold War. Um, and these people were not just just killed, they were disappeared, which meant that the, the rest of the country that was left in the wake of this mass murder lived in terror that maybe this could happen to me, or maybe my son or sister or brother is still alive, and if, 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 if I make too much noise, that's what's going to get them killed. And this was a tactic that was eventually replicated all throughout Latin America, but I believe that it might have been copied from Indonesia. And the reason this was necessary is because before this all started, Indonesia had the third largest communist party in the world behind Russia and the Soviet Union. 
um, but it was a moderate unarmed party that was had done very very well in elections and, and Richard Nixon uh, we now know behind the scenes said um, democracy is not right for Indonesia because the communists can't be beat but also the actual leader of the country who was never a communist but he used the support of the communists at times um, was a leader of what of this third world movement this this a very optimistic and forward-thinking project that united the peoples of the of, of the post-colonial world to stand up and take their their place alongside the the first and second world and he was causing a lot of problems for the u.s over a decade they tried different ways to smash him back into place or to crush the left and it was only this this method this tactic that emerged in 1965 10 years later that actually got it done and we don't even know to what extent it was planned or to what extent it sort of emerged out of the chaos that CIA and MI6 intentionally created. We do know that they intentionally created chaos, hoping that something like this would happen. But once it did happen, once Suharto took, it, took his place um, in the so-called uh, free world uh, as one of the most favored nations um, by the people that really ran things, you know, the U.S. and, and Western Europe, not coincidentally the, the same countries that had enslaved and colonized the, the peoples of the third world, other right-wing movements around the world noticed, and they saw that this could be extremely effective, and they and they started taking notes. Yeah, and I imagine that, that during this time, which was in the sixties in yeah, in six, Indonesia, 64, 65, of course, yeah. the, the the huge the huge uh, veil of what was going on there was Vietnam, right? Yeah. So this is also another. Re so I think there's two reasons why we don't know this story so well in the English-speaking world. The story of the the flip from Indonesia, the Indonesia's flip from a left-leaning anti-colonial power to a murderous ally of Washington. Um, one is because the Vietnam War exploded immediately at the exact same time. It, these things fed off of each other, um, um, even though Indonesia was much more important for the Cold War. Everyone in, in Washington in the early 60s understood that Indonesia was a much larger prize than Vietnam. It's a much bigger country. Sukarno had a much larger role the, on the global stage. But because Vietnam became a quagmire for American troops, you had American citizens sent over there, and it became domestic politics in the U.S. This really dominated how people thought about the, the Cold War in Asia. So Indonesia um, uh, fell into the background. But the second darker reason that we don't know so much about it is because it was so successful that the, the truth was so completely and, and, and finally crushed that we never, we didn't know what really happened. And to the extent that we did know what happened, it, it contradicted so forcefully, so violently, our idea of what we were doing in the Cold War and what it really means to be someone in the quote unquote free world or in the, in the UK or the US, that it just was always seemed better to not really think too much about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, you know, we're here in the 21st century, we're deeply, deeply uh, embedded now in the digital world. Right. Um, We've got uh, this chaos of uh, international relations and geopolitics seems very difficult to get at now because of the digital cacophony. Yeah. And it seems like now when you're looking back into the 20th century when things were much, much actually probably simpler to understand in, in one way because of the lack of the digital cacophony getting in the way. Right. Now, sometimes when you're talking about these things, it sounds like you're a conspiracy theorist, but actually what you'll do is 
doing is looking at the documentation, yeah. doing real journalism, right. which also is difficult to get your right. head around right. in the digital age. You're actually looking at the bones, you're looking at the connective tissue of the 20th century, aren't yeah. you? Um, so do you look at yourself as a historian? I think or this is, are you talking about contemporary culture? Uh, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think the, I think, I mean, this book is a history book, I think. It's a history book written by a journalist. Um, mm. So what I do is I do more, I don't try to rewrite the main narrative that academic historians have put forward. And as you say, like, all of the main bits of the story that I use to construct this narrative are uncontroversially doc true and documented. This is, this is the consensus established by decades and decades of research. Um, and then what I do is I do a lot of interviews with the people that lived through this um, and get their sense of how, what it really felt like and, and make, you know, create a single story um, as to how a single story that would allow sort of the regular person to understand what really happened in a, in a more human sense. But I think you're right to point to the, the differences between the way that information worked then and now. Because the re like for a long time, if you were to claim that what really happened happened, you would probably be by definition a conspiracy theorist. Because from 1965 to maybe 1980, 90, it was quite literally impossible to know because the Sudhara dictatorship successfully hid what they had done. We didn't, like, it was only through the declassification of State Department cables um, that allows us to show the degree to which the United States was really actively pushing for the mass murder and excited about it. So if you were to guess right in 1975 or whatever, you would have been guessing. You would have been theorizing about a conspiracy. Um, mm. But what I do in the book to make sure it's very, very clear what really happened is I actually just quote at length, like, this is a declassified file from Washington, from Jakarta to Washington. This is the exact words of what they're saying about the mass murder. I do this. Exactly. And you, and you see um, now the decreasing amount of resources there exist in even the mainstream media, oh, yeah, yeah, media institutions to actually do this kind of work. Yeah. This long term, long form right. investigative journalism, it's disappearing fast, right? It's, yeah, it's bad. I mean, this is something I like when I went, I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions on my own on my own profession but when I moved to Jakarta in 2017 to cover all of Southeast Asia for the Washington Post I had been doing that been doing this thing kind of thing foreign correspondence for about a decade and you could really see that the kids that were starting out a decade after me were coming into a very different world where they would you know basically the best they could hope for is to, to freelance for some big names couple you know maybe a couple times a month maybe a couple times a year and you get you know the single fee and when you have that kind of relationship to the to the material, when you're like maybe going to get a few hundred dollars to write this article, you end up having to basically rely on governments, NGOs, and corporations to tell you what happened. Yeah. Right. You end up sitting in your office wherever it is, even if you're. I mean, this is true also for staffers at major major newspapers. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but a lot of them have to write three or four stories a day or whatever, and so. How do you really know what happened? Well, you, you rely on better funded organizations to tell you, and those tend to be governments, NGOs, funded by some powerful interest or another. It might be a, a, a big, hard philanthropist, but often it's you know, a weapons, <laughs> weapons company or a, or a government, and, and corporations. And um, I was really fortunate to get the resources to go spend three years going back and carefully you know, talking to. I talked to about 125 people in 12 countries, uh, and slowly figured out who wanted to tell the truth, who was telling the truth, mm. um, 
what kind of narratives could be weaved together to make this sort of a powerful book that a regular person could read in a day or two. And this is that's been something that's really gratifying that people have told me, like, oh, I read it in like a day, or I read it in a day and a half. I understood what it was. I know that this is this is stuff that is usually more complex than what I read, but I got through it and it was and it, it like hit me. But again, that takes it takes an extra probably year or two to make it like that rather than just sort of assembly because anybody could just dump dump Don't all the data. Info. Yeah, 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 yeah. So so all the way through the process of creating the book, you're your employee of the Washington Post and you still are? No, no, no. So I was I was covering Southeast Asia for the Washington Post. But when what was I got, your relationship? Were you a staff or you were, no, you were I was a not, I was sent out there. And we were in the process of upgrading my, uh, like I was in the process of applying for the, the full-time position. Because I just spent six years in, in Brazil in as the correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. I like Times. And, and were you on staff there? Yeah, I was, well, I was the full-time, China, yeah, yeah the full-time uh, yeah, yeah. correspondent. And then when I got the, I had, the, my application was in for the, 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 we were creating a new position in Southeast Asia for the Washington Post. Mm. My application was in when I got the offer to write the book. And when I got that offer, I withdrew my application because right. I realized this is something that I have to spend most of my time on for a few years. Um, not only to get the story right, to be sort of respectful to the, the, the people in the book, the victims. And, you know, it would be really churlish and, and sort of selfish to just kind of like bang this out in the free, my free time. Like yeah. I really like people were entrusting me with really traumatic details of their own lives and really wanting this to come out in a way that told the truth about what happened to them. So I withdrew my application. So yeah. now I'm either now I'm either going to do a second book or I'll go back to yeah. one of the, the major mm. you know, mainstream outlets that I used to work at and look for a job. Because what I'm really interested in is, is your motivations as well for, for pursuing this. Because, I mean, and, and I really get that kind of the, the, the thing you mentioned about the, the privileged position you're in, hearing these testimonies from people. And it's a very, um, there's a sense of duty and uh, a sense of... Um, reciprocity at work when you're spending these people's lives um, because I've worked in independent media all my yeah. life and when I when I when I started out down this route I wanted to be a foreign correspondent and go and, and yeah. cover conflicts because and, and not only conflicts but places where the tectonic plates of history were yeah, yeah, yeah. rubbing up one against one another and that's really where the energy you could, is. You could watch history happen yeah exactly right so for me always working in independent media I've got a desk and a phone that days confused I blag, beg, borrow, steal flight to, to Sarajevo, Bosnia, and then Kosovo, and then Gaza. But, uh, you know, Colombia during the park war there as well. Um, and, you know, you, that was a really difficult one for me to, to deal with because we had literally no resources. Right. I had, you know, just expenses only if I was lucky. Right. So I was pa literally parachuting in. So I'd be, I'd, I'd literally go right, in there right. for two weeks. Yeah. And as you mentioned, the only way you can actually get to that story in that scenario is by literally sitting and breathing the air with the people because right. that's all you've got. Right. That's the only thing you've got. If you're going to be two weeks, it's fascinating that you can do that in over a long period of time as well, two years. What do you think motivated you to have that sort of commitment yeah. to the story? Well, so I, I did about 10 years of work as a full-time correspondent before I decided to do this book. So um, probably the biggest chunk of my career. So I started in Venezuela for a bit under Hugo Chavez. Um, just sort of getting my way, living in Caracas, figuring out how to, how to do journalism. Worked at the FT for a while here in London. It was the FT that sent me to Brazil in 2010. And then the real chunk of my, my like professional life is probably that I, when I covered Brazil from 2010 to 2016 uh, as a correspondent for the LA Times. And by the end of 2017, when I, when I had, you know, and I'd, 
and I had, so that was a decade of doing sort of stories that took a week or two to, to research, maybe, maybe more, maybe a month or two at max. Um, but really just following the news, right? Mm. And when you're doing the news, that has a very important historical role that really matters. Um, but everyone's sort of doing the same thing, right? That's great. Um, and then when I, when I got to Indonesia and I saw how, how mis and under-understood the phenomenon of 1965 was, um, I realized that it, it, was, it needed to be something bigger. And also I was very excited about something like, okay, I've done 10 years of, you know, thousand word story, you know, short little stories or, or newspaper stories that I spent two weeks on. I, I, I can spend three years on something that is really a, a different kind of project, something that would not exist. Because when you're doing a new story about whatever, the selection, you know, 20 people are doing them, you all do them a different way, but it's going to happen. Um, it, with a book, you're really allowed to spend years on something that's really yours, on something that would not come into the world if you hadn't put the, the time into it. And also that's the, I think what the reader gets out of it too, is that they sit down with something that is... A, a, like a more sustained relationship with a topic which allows you to really change your way of thinking about things in a way that you know I, you know, I, would, I probably will go back to full-time correspondence uh, you mm -hmm. know you know like I said I'll probably go back to one of these to the Washington Post or someone and say hey okay what, what do we got going on uh, over the next few years mm. but I think it was really nice to really have and like I said it's really rare to take the real time to really get to know something and then say no I think I, I really know this and I'm gonna explain to you what I think happened mm. yeah yeah Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Do you feel like there's um, there's a future in this long form work that you've been doing? I'm not sure that journalism has a future. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that human beings will still be doing something that we would consider to be journalism in fifty to seventy five years. I think that they'll be doing. I mean, this is the sort of the doomer scenario, but I think it's possible that in seventy five years they'll be doing something that they call journalism, but we would call corporate PR. Right. Or that we would call propaganda, you know, that, you know, because it was a really rare moment in human history where you would have, you know, from the 
sort of the beginning of the 20th century to the beginning of the 21st, that you would have people that were sort of, they were paid for, journalism was paid for by people paying for journalism. People had the resources to sort of gather news and truth and then repackage it in a quote-unquote objective way, which was always a, you never got to objectivity, but it was, it was always an aspirational sort of something you, you aimed for, but you had to recognize it was never really tru truly possible. But you did this because the consumer was asking you to tell them what happened. I think it's very possible that what was going to be happening in 50, 75 years, if we don't correct course as a species, is that people will be told what is happening and who will be paying for that is people that have an interest in shaping the narrative that is in the world. Whether that be mega billionaires that snatch up dying publications to make themselves look good, whether that be corporate uh, corporations that just want to, they basically just do PR, right? And then that just becomes the journalism as we consume it. Um, or states that, that are, are, are effective at carrying out propaganda. So I hope that this kind of, I hope that investigation and a sort of real journalism continues to exist, but I don't think it's guaranteed, no. It's funny, where do you, like, with this gloomy backdrop that we've just, just right. brought up, you know, it, we've experienced this over the last few months, you know, with, with the COVID, with the pandemic thing. There's all sorts of weird stuff happening in terms of disinformation and um, um, misinformation. But, and then you have things like Black Lives Matter, which right. then these huge corporations actually do try and make a pivot in a certain way. And then we, right. we try to, as journalists, we try to facilitate that by telling counter narratives. Is there some sort of hope in the... Don't kind of the market, if you like, the market for freedom and the, the mark, the freedom and uh, equanimity and, and equality becomes a market value in itself, and so therefore corporates need to go get behind that yeah. idea. Well, I've got a little glimpse that there might be a bit of, or am I being naive? No, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know the answer. I think that uh, anytime any entity, whether that be a major corporation, a government even if you think that they're a bad organization in general, if they become less racist, that's a good thing, right? So it doesn't matter if you're talking about a big evil corporation. If they make some effort to reduce their harm in the planet in some small way, that's always to be celebrated. And I think we saw some, I think that might be some of what we saw this summer with, with like sort of brands making sure that they wanted to respond to the uprising um, in defense of black life this summer. Why did you want to become a journalist? I didn't, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> I, my, when I was in, um, when I moved to Venezuela in 2007, I believed that it was, this is just after I finished undergraduate, I believed that I was going to be an academic. I believed that I was going to go back and do a PhD. In Venezuela, I was looking for any job. Um, I got hired by the local English language newspaper that's just like, and this is a really actually common way for people to become foreign correspondents, kind of on accident, the right, right for like the Buenos Aires Herald or the Daily Journal in Caracas or like the the small English language newspaper in whatever part of the world. Uh, and like after like my third article for that tiny English language newspaper, I was like, oh no, no, this is good. Yeah. <laughs> like it, people are actually reading this. Like I, this is actually, even though it's only so many copies, I was like, oh no, this is an immediate impact on reflecting what's happening in the world. I would rather do this than spend nine years writing a long paper, paper that maybe one person reads, you know, my, yeah, yeah. my dissertation. So it was, it was one of these things. I wanted to work in, in sort of global politics, and then I found, journalism kind of found me, I guess. Now, what were you studying and what? So uh, my, I, I went to Berkeley for undergraduate. I studied political economy and rhetoric, which is kind of like a philosophy literary theory program. 
Uh, and then I was going to do a PhD in political right. political theory. Yeah, again in California, I'm very all California. Interesting. So an accidental journalist. Uh, yeah, that's not it's not un, it's not uncommon. No, I think, no, exactly. Especially exactly. among foreign correspondents, yeah. I think foreign correspondents are either guys they like went to Yale or Oxford and then went through the hierarchy at Guardian Times or whatever, mm. and then get sent got sent by like the the big boss because they had a lot of you know uh, organ like they had a lot of power organ in the organization. Or the other half, and these these end up being just as good at it, uh, if not better. Sometimes, are guys that were just were in Cairo for whatever reason. It started kicking off, and somebody asked them if they could, you know, write some things. And it turned out they had a little bit of skill with with writing, and had a little bit of skill, you know, tracking down information, mm-hmm. and then found a career out of it. It's kind of a counterculture and a subculture of its own, isn't it? The foreign correspondent world. I mean, it's kind of um, it's. Uh, you know, how would you characterize that? I was gonna. I've got my opinions on, on what it's like, having glimpsed it a few times. Yeah, uh, I think it can be. I think there's. It can be like romantic and maybe sometimes toxic. Like it's. I think there's a great. There's like on the one hand, there it's like you're really on your own. You have to be really self motivated. and You have to be kind of brave and hardworking because no one's looking over your shoulder, and you have to go out and um, um, do, you know, gather information on your own and 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 be be ethical about it. On the other hand, there's like, especially stereotypical, there's stereotypically, and especially like the poor of the country, there's like this, I think, unhealthy stereotype that some people try to love up to of like guys like gathering around like the like, the seedy bar and like getting very wasted and perhaps unconsciously living lives that are exploitative because they're so much richer than the local population is sort of throwing their weight around. So I, I try to avoid that second thing and, and, yeah. do, the, and do the first, but uh, it is a yeah, it is a weird, it is a weird type of life, and depending on how sort of fucked up the situation you're covering is, it can be hard. hard you know, you you either you want to make sure you stay sane by you know interacting with normal people <laughs> rather yeah. than getting too too uh, too too deep in the muck of. of whatever dark yeah, thing you're covering yeah. and it is it, we go back to those those tectonic plates where you know the, the, the fact is that it te- tends to be where where those stories happen the most interesting sort of the most resonant the most uh, the broader uh, stories happen that have effects in the wider world tend to be in these places that where people are suffering right and uh, I remember I, I always had the sense that I was and it was a difficult thing for me to live with I was kind of but my very being there, I was kind of exploiting them. And, and But then, you know, the only way through that is to actually do a professional job, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's where the ethics come in. Yeah, exactly. There's no way, there is no way to, as as a, as, uh, as an American or someone from the UK in the developing world, there is no way to avoid the neocolonial relationship that is implicit there. There is nothing you can do that makes you not the beneficiary of hundreds of years of exploitation and not, you know, change the fact that you're much, much richer than the local population and you have a discursive privilege that the vast majority of the people there don't have. You can't fix that. So the sort of the best you can do is, you know, apart from just sort of not existing, you know, uh, racing yourself from, from the map, which I don't think would necessarily be positive, the best thing you can do is just try to do a very good job and be very respectful and always try to... Mm. Like, for example, in Southeast Asia, I always tried, like, every single story I did in a new country, I would try to make sure that I would partner up with a local journalist, we'd share the byline, share the reporting, try to get everybody involved as much as possible, share the paycheck. Um, but it is, especially when things are, re- like, 
And again, like you said, when there's when there when there's a lot of pressure on the journalist to produce a story quickly and cheaply, the more likely it is you'll stumble into a very exploitative relationship. You'll either not take the time to respect your interview yeah. subjects, or you'll maybe rely on some local partner that is. Yeah. You're either maybe you're. I mean, I don't. Uh, I've never. I never really use like quote unquote fixers. I think, I think it's kind of a problematic. Usually, I, I like to find a local journalist and you know work with them as a partner. But um, often you'll either be, in, you know, treating the, you know, undervaluing and underpaying a fixer's work, or you, if you're there so so quickly, you'll get a quote unquote fixer that's really just uh, a, the representation of a major interest in the story you are, and you don't yeah. really you don't know enough about the local, uh, the local fabric of society to recognize. Oh no, this is just a guy that works for the Pakistani government. You yeah, know, like, yeah, yeah. So. Um, yeah, I think it's very difficult because we're, you know, with less and less resources, it it becomes easier and easier to rely upon your sort of Western privilege and to, um, and to, not, I don't think be damaging, but to, 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 to accomplish much less than we should be accomplishing. Yeah, but really there is no substitute for actually getting there, using the cliche, Boots on the ground, which is horrible, militaristic, but actually breathing the air with I think people. It's, right? What's the what's the what's the journalistic equivalent of boots on the ground? A shoe leather. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, doesn't sound quite as no, imperialist. But it's, but it's. I mean, even though I mean, we. I mean, I, I find now, um, you know, we're embedded here in London, in like the most privileged, strangely ghostly now, but of course, but you know, just there's so much pressure on, say, the Huck Daily feed to get so much right, stuff course, yeah. out. Even the young journalists that work here hardly ever get a chance to go out and actually right. talk to someone. Right, right. And we're always trying to say, no, get out and be a journalist. Right, right, right. But when you've got that daily deadline pressure, there's yeah, so right. much information bouncing yeah, into your yeah, inbox. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's worrying that um, you know the, 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 the value of actual face-to-face old-fashioned journalism is, is depleting. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a cliche. It's kind of like a thing that dumb people on the internet say. They're like, oh, everything's driven by clicks. clicks. But it's also half true, right? Like, mm. you, when you have, you know, if, uh, you know, again, these are some of the best, you know, most respected publications in the world. But I know that the people that write for them know that, that they're going to be judged at the end of the day by how many clicks they get, right? And you kind of internalize that. And you think, okay, well, do I do, do I do one more story about how the bad leader is bad? which everyone is going to click on because everyone loves to hate this guy or do I spend three weeks sort of uh, investigating the effects on water policy of the bad guy and mm. the first thing makes more sense like the internal logic of 2020 journalism tells you to do the first thing um, so you can see how what your, your analysis of the future of journalism works is almost this gradual erosion of the value of breathing the air with people in investigation because of the market, what amounts of market pressures. Yeah. So in the end, that you, all you've got is um, stories that are driven by by interests that aren't the interests of truth. You get more and more of that, I think. But also, when I started, you know, almost fifteen years ago, the people that were fifteen years before me were talking yeah. about how things were better. And I still think that the things that, you know, I think it's very important, the things that we did in that, in that time that I did before I met the new generation were, were of value. And so I think that always, like I said, it's always journalism, even in the, in the best moment of its history, has always been deeply imperfect. And you have to find the ways that you can do the best you can. 
and fight against the the tendencies that make that more difficult. Mm. But yeah, there's still pockets here and there, and you know, getting people to you know sort of buy a book or or spend time with a long magazine article or whatever is is a way to mm. create that little space for some kind of a real uh, a real bit of um, I don't know journalism knowledge creation or some kind of a of a connection to uh, to to shape our understanding of the world. Yeah. So that's what I was going to ask. Actually, um, what are your ambitions for the book? I mean, what is what what can it do? I mean, it's it, it seems to be it's getting it's getting at something very profound. Uh, our understanding of what the the latter end of the twentieth century was all about. Mm-hmm. What are your ambitions for it? What can it do? What mechanic can it play in our understanding? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess. I mean, uh, I hope, I mean, I've, I'm actually already quite gratified with the, you know, with the way that it's going. You know, people are reading it. People are telling me that it's changed the way they view either America or the global system or the relationship between capitalism and socialism. So I would like just that to continue happening. I really hope that it gets translated um, into the languages uh, that are spoken in the countries that it's really about. So, I mean, this is like... I have to push really hard. You have to like, it's in a weird kind of, again, neo-colonial way, you have to sell a lot in the U.S. before yeah. they mm-hmm. agree to, yes, to, sell, to sell it in Europe. So don't, I just now, very luckily, they, they put just, just now have started printing it in, and I don't know if it's London, but in, 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 in the U.K. so that they can supply Europe because before it was like, yeah, we'll see how it does in New York. So, but I hope that, um, yeah, I really just hope that some people find, you know, it finds the people that want to spend a day or two sitting down with this kind of and rethinking the global system and that they, they, they believe that it's valuable and they, and they come out of it knowing more about where they physically sit in, on planet Earth than they did before. And that's been happening and I've been really, really grateful for that. Um, but yeah, the next, the, next, uh, the next goal, the immediate goal is to get it translated. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so you find yourself now in London after, you know, you've, you've lived this kind of international life uh, between Brazil and Indonesia and you're an American. Right. Uh, you find yourself in London. What, what's up in London for you? Why? So I moved to London in 2008. Right. After I finished up my journalism and, uh, uh, or not finished, but after I finished covering uh, Caracas and Hugo Chavez for a couple of years. Uh, I did a master's here and then I ended up working at the FT and in the garden and the FT sent him to Sao Paulo. And I just like, I really, like when I got here, I kind of connected with like sort of some friends that I really, you know, I sort of found a, a, a nice life here. Uh, I really liked the way that I could live here. And so when I, um, I would always come back here over the, the decade that I was living in Sao Paulo and Jakarta, I still have, you know, my partner, my, a better and like more solid friend group even than I do in LA because I left LA when I was 18. And so when I finished writing the first draft of the book in Indonesia last year, I moved back here to do the edits and the proofreading at the British Library because I either had to do it at the British Library or the National Library in Washington, D.C. I don't want to live in Washington, D.C. I have no interest in mm-hmm. like spending a lot of time there in the city. I don't know. So I came, yeah, I came back here. And so now I'm, um, I'm covering uh, Europe for New York Magazine as you know, as we figure out what's going to happen with the pandemic, if I, if I make that into a more permanent thing or if I get a second book contract and, yeah. and run around the world again. But yeah, London has been sort of my second home, if not my home, since around 2008. Yeah. So you remain as foreign correspondent. I'd be interested to see, I'm a, a native Londoner, what, is it, what does this city look like with your lens? Is because it? you've seen, you're used to having a sort of critical and a, a 
a critical lens really on, on the place that's surrounding you. It's, Tell me about London. It's interesting <laughs> because, uh, well, one, I think Brexit changed, did change things a little bit more than I, like, at the political or, or policy level, you don't really know what, if it happened at all. But one thing that I have noticed is like, because I was always like, was at the intersection of sort of locals and, and foreigners. And I think in the last couple of years, you saw like the people that would have come didn't, right? Like over from, from 20, 20, 2008 to 2020, you always saw like a new group of French or Italians or Swedish or whatever come to live here and try to make their way. And I think from 2017 to 2019, that group was much smaller than it would have been. Uh, and that, like, just because I live in this hyper, like, you know, this is not the real, the average life of, uh, in the UK, because I feel like that sort of part of central London where you're really sensitive to that, I noticed, you know, that, that changed things a little bit. Um, and then at, like, the more planetary world historical scale, the UK's future is quite in- interesting, right? Because... To a very large extent, the UK is a, a country that makes all of its money off of its location in the financial infrastructure of the planet. And that requires being sort of embedded in, like, at the perfect intersection of all the money flows that go through the world. And the UK has been really successful at positioning itself in that way since uh, the United States took over as the global hegemon. But now it's this weird, weird thing. It's like, okay, so do will the UK remain really attached to the US to make sure that that's going to happen? Can the US even continue to provide that kind of structural positioning that allows the UK to just live off of kind of rents that come in from banking around the world. Uh, I think it'd be really interesting. Like, I don't, I mean, I think, I don't know. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I think, but I, I'm not like worried about the UK the way that I'm worried about the US. The US, I think, is in the risk, of, you know, could like collapse, you know, the, the US could be facing like catastrophic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, I feel like the project for the, the Brexit project will come to fruition in a way. Um, I feel like the people that really supported Brexit are the people that want Britain to be this really fucking strange, but quite creative yeah, country. It could happen. And I think it will. I, you know, I I didn't support Brexit. Yeah. I mean, I love. For, for me, London is its diversity. Is uh, yeah. If if I, if we can keep a bit of that. And, and we can maybe we will be we'll be a very strange country in ten years time once yeah. the, with the the so-called shackles of the European yoke have kind, yeah. of, kind of come off us. But that's what they wanted. These guys no. never believed in a welfare state. They yeah. never believed in free healthcare, equitable yeah. for all, and never believed that we were Europeans. Yeah. And I think we we will go back to that well, strangeness. Yeah, I think I mean I think there's there is a way for the, the I mean I definitely I don't. I don't believe that every country has to get richer always every year to remain a good country. I think there's a lot of ways that the UK can end up being a weirder and less rich country and still be a really interesting and great place. But there's a lot of ways that it can be, be weirder and less rich and not a better place. You know, it really just depends on the way. But yeah, there are really nimble negotiations that are required, you know, at the moment. But I'm looking at the US, it's like, it's just a total, you know, the US could like see like an implode. I mean, we're really kind of seeing an implosion. I mean, everyone like California, it's like the amount of people that are on unemployment but just can't get it because we don't even have an unemployment office. Like it's, it's things that are quite unimaginable, I think, to the, to the Western European. Like in the U.S., you lose your job, you become homeless, and then you die. Like there's a, really, there's a chance that like you get hit by a car and then five years later you die because you ran out of money. That kind of a, a, a real collapse I don't, I don't really see happening in the U.K. in the, yeah, in the near yeah, future. Yeah.
I mean, that's the thing that I feel like that weird relationship with Britain and the US, this special relationship. There's a lot of Brit- Britons that really don't understand that aspect of America, like you're saying, the brutality of it. Yeah, yeah. The, the Darwinian nature of the culture. You're, you can lose in America. Like, yeah. You don't really, like, the, you, can, you can get, when you fall to the bottom rung here, it's awful and, I, and, it's, and it should be, should be protested and documented, but it's, it's way higher than the bottom rung yeah. in America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 This is something that we uh, ask every 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 interview in this series. You talk about books and accessibility. What are the books? What's a book that is a companion for you that you take everywhere with you and has been a big influence? Oh yeah, like one one book. I mean, this is such a cliche, but like one book that I've reread constantly throughout my whole life is Dubliners by James Joyce. Oh, really? So like it's that is one that's kind of like often at the bottom of my travel pack and like right. every three years I'll pull it out and read like yeah. one of the short stories that I like okay yeah how about film uh, film that I rewatch uh, okay one great film that I just remembered uh, um, how great it is that I've also watched many many times is Battle of Algiers um, so it's not only about this struggle to find to, to throw off the European colonial yoke it's also scored by Ennio Morricone, and it's kind of some of the best soundtrack of all time. Amazing. So that, that's one of the films that I always I find really inspiring. Okay, so that's a book and a film. Um, how about music? One album. Uh, one album. <laughs> uh, so what is one? Uh, what is one thing that I listen to all the time? Um, so like two. Okay, two two things that I got back into weirdly as uh, I was writing this book are both like weirdly randomly both happen to be from this country, but uh, things that I hadn't listened to for a long time is uh, Autekra oh. and uh, Dizzy Rascal first oh, Boy yeah. Corner. Yeah, so like, yeah, like I do like like early like Boy Corner man. That's that's I wasn't expecting that coming. Yeah. I don't know why I wasn't expecting. Yeah, that like I do that's actually listen. Yeah, I listen to like actually listen to loads of like. Uh, um, instrumentals, grime instrumentals, while while writing the book too. But then also just like I mean, I really like like mix. I li- like, basically I just go on YouTube and listen to like DJs from Mexico. Like they're like they're, they're new mixes of cumbia and things and dangdu, which is like I listen to a lot of the, the weird dance music coming out of Indonesia. Uh, but those albums, like, Ateca was big when I was growing up. And then uh, so you could with languages. Did you speak? Did you speak Spanish before you went to Spanish? I learned Spanish in Los Angeles. Oh yeah. And, Growing up on the streets of LA, but also visiting my family in Mexico City. So I have oh, nice. sort of distant relatives in Mexico, but we're close, like we're friends. So it's right. my grandma's family in Mexico City. So I learned Spanish in LA, really got it down uh, in Venezuela. Mer- moved, learned German well enough, but that's fallen off uh, after university. Got very, I mean, not very good, but Portuguese is by far my best language now. So, oh, great. Um, Portuguese is like a language where I could do like a podcast and like nice. make jokes and things. Uh, and then after I moved from Brazil to Indonesia, I learned Indonesian well enough to do all the interviews in the book. Yeah. So I could not do this in Indonesian, but I did all, I did, I could sit down with these survivors and have, have them tell me their life story, yeah. record oh. it and carefully go through it in Indonesian. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. That's a great, great tool. Uh, you just mentioned, and this is probably, I mean, I don't know if make, tell me about LA, because I always think LA, I mean, I'm fascinated by LA, I've got family over there, I'm over there, I try and get there once a year at least, you know, the last few years. It seems like it's out of time, it always seems the same, whenever you go back, whenever you just, yeah. I've got this sense it's in LA, weird. Like you leave it, 
and you go back and it's like you never left. Yeah. Nothing seems to change. It's, and so it's it not feels real... retro. It, it doesn't feel like the city of the future. It's, it feels like it's always been there. Well, this is a real problem for Los Angeles and I think for America in general uh, is that it was like, it's built and then it can't be redone. Like the way that the, the, the suburban sprawl rolled across Southern California, which it like should be a beautiful, vast uh, landscape of natural, uh, of, 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 of nature, like because they just, it's because America was so rich and moved so fast, it kind of developed in a way that can never be fixed, right? So like yeah. in America, because, or sorry, LA especially, because it was built like the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, everything looks like it was that type of development. And then it's just what it is. Like you can't, you can't like redo those suburbs. No. And like the suburb that I grew up in, again, this, I think this is really... Um, Which is where? I grew up, uh, so I was born in Santa Monica. I moved down. My first apartment was Garden Grove. So like, uh, and then I moved to Huntington Beach, like at the like South LA County, North Orange County, like Long Beach, Huntington Beach area. My particular, like the, the house my parents were still in, like it was kind of like a one generation town. Like the entire, like everybody bought a house in the 80s. They had kids, their kids went off to do something else. And now the entire town is like 50 to 70. Yeah, yeah. And like there's no mechanism for that to become a new thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because it was built so quickly and so rapacious. And like there's no nature whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Like you could have easily made it a little bit more dense. Like the streets, like the street that like my parents' house is on is as big as like the biggest highways in the UK. Yeah. And it's just houses. Yeah. You could, if you, you could have changed that a little bit and maintained 50% of the town being beautiful beachfront yeah, yeah. wetlands. Yeah. But they just like paved the whole thing through houses there. And like you can't do that. And I think it does leave this weird sense of like, oh no, this is from, this is like an 80s town. Yeah. And like LA is like a 50s and 60s town. And it can't like, yeah. it can't re... It's locked into its... Yeah, yeah it becomes yeah, locked strange. into the... Because they literally paved every square inch and threw mm. out, you know, and gave real estate developers free reign to, to sell their wares. Yeah, and weird and, and, and strange. You've got these, this kind of radical... Sort of, there's a lot of radical people there, and there's a lot of conservative people, and people exist in these bubbles. They don't see each other, you just pass <laughs> each other in your car. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Joining the Dots. Big thanks to Vincent Bevins, to Vince Medeiros, publisher at Huck. Big thanks to Rob Taliesin Owens, Sonic Alchemist, as always. And thanks to you for listening once again. Don't forget to download, subscribe, comment and share and stay tuned for more Joining the Dots. I'll be with you again soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.